0: People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turine Productions. You're listening to Fine Music Radio and this is Rodney Trojan welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. Now, for many people, the opera The Tales of Hoffman is Jacques Offenbach's masterpiece. It was written right towards the end of his life, and in fact, he apparently died during the rehearsals. The opera is being presented by the UCT Opera School with an exciting young cast, and Jeremy Silver is conducting the Cape Philharmonic. The director of the opera is Stephen Stead, who has many credits to his name, including opera, musical, and plays. He's worked in London. We'll hear all about him at the moment. But I've invited Stephen into the studio to talk about his production of this mercurial opera. Stephen, welcome.
1: Uh, hello, Rodney. Thank you for having me.
0: Am I right in saying mercurial?
1: Oh, I think that's a very good word, actually. Enigmatic is another good one. Oh. Bizarre is another good oh, one. Oh, really? And very melodic.
0: Okay, but you had a lovely quote just yeah, before Yeah,
1: I, I think it's a, a cabinet of curiosities, which is a very intriguing thing. It intrigues more than it entertains.
0: I was reading your director's note and it's one of those operas, isn't it, that has had various versions because of the fact that Offenbach died. It's one
1: of the biggest challenges actually as a director putting the piece on because it's something of a Frankenstein's monster. Because Offenbach died three months before it was premiered, the liberties that were taken with the original production by the producers have rendered the score uh, very, very problematic because, for example, there were – Offenbach had uh, spoken dialogue in the style of opera comique and all of that was taken out and recitatives were replaced, which made the show an hour longer than it's supposed to be. So oh they just cut the third act, put the barcarolle from that third act into the second act and set that in v- uh, Venice instead of in Hamburg. That's justifying <laughs> the roll. So It's that kind of change which mm-hmm. has been extraordinary to try and get your head around. But predominantly because it's it's three based on three tales – linked together by the the life of uh, the real poet, E.T.A. Hoffman. His personality begins and ends the opera because it starts with a prologue and ends with an epilogue. That's actually the narrative arc. It's got three parentheses of these three stories, the Olympia, Antonia, and Julietta stories. But to get a narrative arc going all the way through from the prologue to the epilogue, you have to know, the audience has to know, and certainly the director has uh-huh. to know, Who Hoffman is, Mm -hmm. what his relationship is to the muse who turns into his best friend Niklaus for the three stories and who is this villain in his life and who are these women in his life and if you can answer those questions then you have a through line from beginning to end. If you don't you have a confused mess and that just ends up being a cabinet of curiosities which engages uh, in a superficial way from scene to scene but doesn't deliver an an ultimately satisfying theatrical experience in the theatre and I really hope um, that the work that we've done and trying to make it a, a cogent experience in the theater will pay off in the production.
0: So you make me think now, are people, do they need to do some homework before they come and see the show? No,
1: I don't think so. I think that what we, uh, I think reading the program note will be fine and just mm-hmm. take uh, what we present uh, in the moment. Uh, I think the melodies are, speak for themselves. They're very accessible. You might want to read up about it. After you've
0: seen it. Oh, that's a good point, which yeah. one does very often, actually. And then a whole lot of things click into place exactly. that you've seen. Exactly. Is it in English or in French?
1: No, we're singing in French. Mm-hmm. The opera singers need to practice uh, their French and Italian, German. Opera UCT is excellent in their language uh, skills and development. These young singers are getting major roles all over the world because they're so well prepared at Opera UCT. Yeah, Gosh,
0: good for Mm. them. Good for UCT, I should say, for the opera school.
1: Absolutely. And I think Jeremy Silver has a lot to do with that. He's the head Mm. of the opera school and he pays a lot of attention to language.
0: And as I said, he's conducting this production. Uh, beautifully as well. And when I spoke to him, he certainly sounds very passionate about it,
1: the production and the opera. Well, when Jeremy asked me to direct it, I, I, I thought he was a little crazy because it's an enormous show. It's, it's five acts long, really, if you count the epilogue and prologue. And it's a cast of thousands But and, and ambitious. And I think it's wonderful that the school's taken it
0: on and pulled it off. Yeah. Can I just get one thing right? Mm -hmm. E.T.A. Hoffman, we know, is a music critic and writer and all those things. Did he – who wrote the libretto, for example?
1: Um, uh, The name escapes me for a moment. It begins with a G. It's a French name. Um, Sorry, I can't remember. No, it's But it's based on his short stories or three of his short stories. Of E.T.A. Hoffman's short stories. right? and other similarities. But I mean, Hoffman, what we know about him is that he died at 45 of syphilis and he had been an alcoholic. So that – Poet, a very, so a very troubled and self-destructive personality, mm, mm. and that is what uh, Offenbach and his collaborators used as the personality to um, link these
0: this extraordinary uh, curate's egg, curate
2: egg. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, of, of tales together. Um,
0: Stephen, you know, one associates Offenbach with opera comique, as you said, mm-hmm. and with Katey Przybien and the light, fluffy f- music he did. Yet this seems to be quite different. He was. I wonder what attracted him to it. He was
1: very hell bent on trying to create a masterpiece before he died. Mm-hmm. He had written La Belle Helene and uh, dans la Verd and various other, you know, hugely popular yeah, comic comic, absolutely. absolutely
0: comic, the French comic opera genre,
1: absolutely. And um it was a toast of Paris for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but he really, really wanted to leave something. It was a, it's a legacy project, I think, for him, yeah. and tragedy for him that he died three months before seeing it on stage.
0: And before he knew that it
1: was a success. Yeah, quite. I think he had a a real inkling that it was going to be Mm -hmm. a success. He was certainly uh, excited about the material. Yeah. Um, And, you know, despite the fact he was writing, trying to write a more serious work, there's plenty of lightness, and you can you can hear the Offenbach in the music. It's yes. Francis aria and uh, the students' songs, the drinking songs, and it, it, you can hear the playfulness constantly. Yes,
0: the French playfulness. Of Absolutely, Offenbach. Stephen, you've chosen one of the arias. It's a trio, isn't it? As our yes. first piece of music, tell me. What we can expect. Well, uh, this is the trio from the Antonia Act. Uh, we set that
1: in Act 2. See, that's the other thing. The order of acts can vary from version to version. But Perfect it makes goodness. sense to us, To it makes sense to me anyway, to go from Olympia, which is a, a very youthful, romantic Hoffman, to uh a more mature Hoffman in the Antonia Act, and a broken, cynical Hoffman in the Giulietti Act when he has the affair with the courtesan. So this is from the middle of his life story, as it were, with the young, consumptive girl who is an opera singer, Antonia. And in this particular piece, she is uh, lured by the villain Dr. Miracle, to sing until she dies, like so many operat- operatic <laughs> heroines before her. But, um, the, the, the devil, as it were, the devil figure in the, the opera uses, uh, the ghost of her mother, who was a famous opera singer who died as well, conveniently, um, to, uh, <coughs> to lure her into singing until she expires. And this trio is her being led to sing and sing and sing until she passes out. And it's, it's quite Thrilling to listen to it 's certainly theatrical, and uh, you can get a sense of the beauty of the melody and and also it 's just rousing theatricality. It, uh, the piece speaks for itself. <laughs>
0: music there from the Tales of Hoffman by Offenbach, an opera that's about to be performed here in Cape Town on the 8th of September. And that was in trio from the opera. Tell me a little bit more about it. Who was singing? It's my favorite recording of uh, the Tales of Hoffman. It's quite an idiosyncratic recording. It's Richard
1: Bonning's version where he plays fast and loose with quite a few rules and chops things up and restores dialogue. But it's Joan Sutherland and Gabrielle Bacchier. And they are Just magnificent, even if you can't understand all Miss Sutherland's French. (laughs) Exactly, exactly,
0: gosh. Okay, my guest is Stephen Stead, who's the director of the UCT Opera School production of The Tales of Hoffman. And I want to know now, you've spoken about it being a curate's egg in a cabinet of curiosities. curiosities. I suppose this gives you as a director plenty of leeway to be mischievous, inventive, so I'm keen to know what your conception is with a piece like this. Well, um, it's almost, it almost gives you too much
1: room for inventiveness, actually, yeah. because it can be absolutely anything. But I, for me, it's all about who Hoffman is. And um, he's a poet, which means he's a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And these three stories he's written. And he is also the central figure in each of these stories. And so I have made him a film auteur, a washed-up, has-been filmmaker. So he's also he's a modern oh, storyteller. Okay. So um, he is in love, or he's not in love. He has a complicated love relationship with his uh, diva, Stella, who uh, I imagine is the star of all his big movies. And, in fact, you'll see great big posters of her in his films on the set and he she wants to take it to the next level and have a, a romantic relationship i mean he's so immersed in his art and his work and trying to create that it he finds it distracting and he he hides away from her and um he hides in his work and his stories about aspects of her personality rather than confronting the real flesh and blood woman, which is terribly messy and mm-hmm. and inconvenient, like so many artists you have to make it, he has to make a choice between. Being creative or having a healthy normal
0: life. Does this mean that you've given it a sort of contemporary setting?
1: Yes, I have. Um, so I've set it. I suppose you could call it uh, contemporary LA. The first act is supposed to take place in a tavern. I have it taking place in a uh, LA hotel bar, oh, yes. um, which would have been next to the theater where the film was. Stella was of Don Giovanni that Stella is appearing in is ah. taking place, and then each of these stories I am styling like a classic film. So. Olympia's act is just based on Metropolis. Metropolis, with, with the film? The film, the, you know, the making oh. of it with the robots and the doll. and yes, um, the mechanical and the, thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Olympia, uh, Antonia's act is much more like uh, The Red Shoes, that yes. sort of saturated color, um, Technicolor, weird English kind of uh, film. And then uh, the Giulietta act, which takes place in Venice. I'm setting in uh, like a 1930s Hitchcock film noir,
0: Nazis, lots of angles and cheer scorer. Wow. Which must have been a wonderful challenge for you, Stephen. Well, it's just delicious.
1: I mean, The, the pieces are so, the, the three acts are so incredibly mm. different. But you try and get, make them tie together with some sort of theme, so that's the filmmaking. So we actually watch cameras filming the actors and relaying the images to a big screen. So the audience is getting to see the action in three different perspectives. Oh, so simultaneously. the cameras on stage. Yeah. Wow. They are not there in the prologue, obviously, but when we see him... Uh-huh. Of making his movies, we actually see those movies being made. So you, you can get really up close and personal with the singers, and it's very important for these singers to um, to act very cohesively because everything is under scrutiny. You can mm. see the thoughts going through their eyes. Mm. It's quite thrilling, and quite different, I would say, for an opera. I think it is different because it allows an audience into a space which usually is uh, quite epic, and this becomes quite. Intimate, intimate, but but you're also getting the live performance uh, element at the same time. So you are getting the epic. You're getting both. You're in getting fact. both, yeah. A cinema and an opera, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> That's a, a film well, do you know opera. what? Uh, someone very wise once said to me that opera, the natural sister of opera is film. And I went, oh, don't be ridiculous. One's realistic and one's hyper real. And he said, no, no. If you take the music away from a film, there is hardly anything to look at. And it's true. And it's the same with opera. The music is your emotional subtext. It tells your story. It tells you what your characters are thinking. Mm-hmm. And you remove it, and suddenly your storytelling is very
0: porous. What have you done with the prelude and epilogue? Those are staged realistically. Without cameras and things. No as cameras, you said. no. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then that takes the audience into, into the world the three of, of imagination. Yeah, and storytelling. Okay. You also said, Stephen, that's quite a large cast. It's quite a big production. Yes.
1: Uh, there's a, a large number of, um, cameo characters in it. Um, the thing, it was conceived to be all the central roles to be played by the same singers. So one soprano played all four roles. One, te- obviously Hoffman plays all, f- all four, five acts. And one baritone plays all the villains. But, Because this is uh, for young singers and to give everybody in a very large campus an opportunity to sing, and my God, there's some great singing, Mm -hmm. we have um, allowed the characters to be played by different people. Also, the the vocal demands on the soprano, you have to have an extraordinary voice to be able to, a specific kind of personality to be able to play all those very different roles. The mad coloratura of Olympia, the lyric. Heavy the light lyric of uh, Antonia, and then the medium, almost mezzo of Giulietta. It's it's quite a, a demand.
0: So normally those three roles would be sung by the same soprano.
1: If you have not, actually not so much. Even nowadays in the Treffka, some is, will sing Stella and Antonia, but they'll get a coloratura soprano in to sing the uh, Olympia, and another a mezzo to sing the uh, uh, Giulietta. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, someone like Diana Damrau has sung all four roles.
0: Um, it is done if you
1: have the right person, but yeah. it, it doesn't stand for the time on that. and the space to do Absolutely. that. Absolutely.
0: And Stephen, what about the chorus? It is a bit of a chorus opera, isn't it?
1: Uh, there is no chorus in the Antonio scene, funnily enough, and they don't do much in the Julieta, but they're very heavily involved in the prologue, epilogue, and the, uh, Olympia act. And we've actually got we've had to augment the the chorus with students from Stellenbosch because they we just didn't have enough guys actually mm-hmm. to to fill the vocal requirements.
0: And the orchestra, Stephen, is the orchestra fairly big? I it's mean, huge. it's huge. I haven't, I haven't huge, really? the
1: Baxter pit is absolutely packed. I saw them today for the first time, <laughs> so they're sounding splendid. So of course, it's the Cape Philharmonic Orchestra, hmm. Um but yes, it's a very big orchestra.
0: Okay. So Offenbach himself was able then to bring in lots of colour, I presume mm. in the singing the chorus of or the orchestra, giving this sort of magical, I think I said, um a magical opera, a magical experience, uh, which is true, isn't it? Yes. You're it's in the world of magic. Definitely.
1: Magic in the uh yeah, the imagination. Okay. It's
0: in infinite possibilities. Now we're gonna have another piece of music. And I'd like you to choose what we're going to have next from your choice.
1: Um, I think we should listen to uh, Maria Callas singing A Forse Louis from La Traviata.
0: You can always tell Maria Callas' voice, can't you, Stephen?
2: Absolutely.
1: It is um, utterly unique and very magical.
0: That was A Forza Louis from La Traviata by Verdi. And you said it was one of the pieces that got you interested in opera, Stephen. By the way, my guest is Stephen Stead, who's directing The Tales of Hoffman here at the UCT Opera School at the Baxter you said that that aria helped and get not you into
1: the, opera. Not the aria. It was uh, a, a Maria Cullis. Uh, I picked ah. up an album of color, uh, highlights from Carmen that my mum had when I was about 10 years old. And the sound just made the hair on the back of my neck stand up, but in the most positive way. And uh, it's, uh, the, oh, God, I love her voice. The drama in it, the commitment, the, the passion. And I, I became a bit of a... <laughs> I was going to say a bit of a whore. I was finding everything that she would ever sung and collecting records, and and it led me to a world of opera, which to love a world of opera, which has become oh such an important part of my life. I am passionate about it, and I have been since I was ten or twelve years old.
0: My goodness! So, but just tell us a little bit about your background, because you were born in Durban. Yes, you? I you was grew born up in, in Durban. Durban. Did you have a musical family? Or? No.
1: My mum is a biology teacher. Uh, my dad was a, a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. Um But um, she used to take us to all the ballet, all the opera. Well, no, actually not so much opera, but ballet, musicals, plays, pantomimes when we were kids mm-hmm. um, that NAPAC used to put on. Yes, remember and, NAPAC, yeah. gosh. And it uh, ignited my imagination and uh, my curiosity. And it's all I've ever wanted to do. And I've been very lucky until COVID. It absolutely was all I've ever done. (laughs) And I'm really glad to be back doing what I love doing. So
0: it's been your life. You haven't had other jobs.
1: or I've never had another job. I have acted and I've directed. And that has been my life.
0: But as I said also in my introduction, you've done all sorts of things, opera, musical, plays. Um, so you're clearly a very versatile uh, theater person. I, I think of myself
1: as a storyteller mm-hmm. primarily. I think that's what we do in the theater is we are telling stories. We're just using visual and musical means to do so. Um, and I take pride in telling my stories in a, a lot of detail and making sure that an audience can follow a narrative arc as All we have to now with Tales of Hoffman. Well, good luck with that, because we'll it's it quite an interesting <laughs> journey.
0: <laughs> but then w- what was your first experience with uh, acting or directing, or which came first?
1: Um, no, acting certainly came first, but I trained as an actor at, yeah. uh, at Durban University, University of Natal, and I got my honors degree in drama. But, of course, we did do some directing projects then, and I find that... I When I got into the profession and I was working as an actor, uh, in fact, I've worked down here in Cape Town. I did quite a lot of work down here. As, an actor. Yes. as an actor? Yes. I played Ariel in The Tempest um, at Maynardville in 1994 and various other roles for k musicals musicals, various other things. But I did find myself disappointed at the direct. I, re- uh, I received from <laughs> yeah. the professional directors. And not it mentioning me, any names. No names no mentioned. Names. But it did make me feel, gosh, uh, if these guys can do it, I can definitely do it. And I'm an actor, so I know how to help performers. And I particularly like getting performances out of opera singers because they often they have so much potential. And they uh, tend to be so much in their heads about the music. When you liberate them or encourage them to be physically free and and help to tell the story through their bodies in space, you it can be so thrilling for them and for me mm. to see performances being created.
0: Which must make your journey through the Tales of Hoffman interesting because, as you said, you're working with a very young cast, so you're able mm-hmm. to mold them. Maybe more established singers will get slightly irritated and remain static. I like to think
1: that that has – well, certainly it hasn't been the case in my life. I mean, I've directed some quite starry names like Julia McGuinness and uh, Jennifer Larmor, and they've been nothing but collaborative. Mm -hmm. Thomas Allen, um, I've really enjoyed working with with everybody, but uh, yeah. You, there's always room to for improvement. There's always room for push a little bit extra,
0: a little tweak. Um, you just let's talk about your. You went across to London, didn't you? As you said, I did. Were you? Did you get a bursary to go and study there? No, Were not you at lucky all. Did
1: I, you get a break. Uh, it's a complicated story. I was working here at Artscape uh, for Cape Town Opera as an assistant director on La Traviata, which is why I chose the Traviata. It was my first directorial job, assisting Christine Krauser. And during that production, I, my job was, part of my job was to direct Jenny Drivala, who came out from uh, Greece to sing the Violetta. And strangely enough, during the course of that rehearsal period, the two of us fell deeply in love and I went overseas to be with her. And that is how we ended up in London because I couldn't work in Greece because I don't speak much Greek. <laughs> and um she speaks five languages so we ended up living in london and i ended up working at english national opera and after our relationship broke up um she went back to greece and i stayed in london and because i had a job there and i was really loving it um and that's how i ended up in london
0: okay now here it says for example that you did uh, the marriage of figaro at eno a host of other things um what was it like working in a place like the eno um
1: i loved it i really Really did love it. Um, it's an enormously d- disciplined and structured organization. Um, it also taught me of something very important about producing, which has allowed me to come back and develop my own company here uh, about time management and scheduling. That is 50% of the job. If you can manage your time and other people's time effectively, you can get so much done. In, with positive energy behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned that at the Eno. Also working very fast in a lot of detail because one of my jobs used to be preparing the understudies or second casts for uh, performance on the biggest stage in London and I would be given the balcony bar to work in with a couple of chairs and tables. So you have to use your ingenuity <laughs> yes, and, sure. and also know your score and know your production really, really well so you can teach it fast and effectively.
0: Wow. Okay, I want to ask you about coming back to South Africa mm. and why you came back and all that. But first of all, let's take another piece, another choice of your music, Stephen. Um,
1: I think that we should have a listen to uh the main theme from Out of Africa by John Berry. Because that will tell do. you about why I came back to Africa. <laughs> yes, as
0: opposed to out.
1: I've always been very passionate about the African landscape and bush and the continent, which made living in uh, glacial, damp England very, very difficult. And... Uh, um, this film out of Africa was always a bit of a, a, a beacon and a source of much heart sickness and homesickness for me and I could just just took three bars, hearing three bars of the music to make me long for the stars and the felt. And um we go to the bush as often as we can, um, my partner and I, um, to recalibrate and decompress in between being creative. So in between loving music and art and theatre, uh, my next big love is the outdoors and this piece of music encapsulates that outdoors perfectly.
0: Gosh, I haven't heard that for a long time, Stephen. It makes me it. weep
1: every time I hear
0: it. You just see yourself in the cinema, can't you, with, with this whole… No, I
1: see myself on the plane with Robert Redford.
0: Oh, right. <laughs> yes, you said, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, when you broke up with your Greek lady, you kind of switched sides, didn't you?
1: Oh, I didn't. I didn't. Life is complicated, Rodney. I know it is. Um, but I did um, form a relationship with Greg King, um, through work, we were working together on projects, and we just realized we have so much in common. And he actually was the reason why I came back to Africa.
0: I was just about to ask you why you came back. Yeah, uh, London, as opposed to <laughs> out of Africa. I
1: came back to Africa. Uh, no, London had um, done what it could for me. I, I'd been there for a decade almost, and I was starting to feel like it was I was part of a sausage factory. Ultimately, as exciting as the Eno was, mm-hmm. and. um Greg was an independent producer trying to make theater in the the gap that that was left by the arts councils dissolve. And I thought what he was doing was quixotic and so exciting because he was independent and, and he's, he's a brilliant creative force. And we started collaborating on projects and that led from one thing to another. And now he's my life partner as well as my physical partner. And we've been together for 20 years and we've been making theater all that time. And we've done some huge projects. But
0: he's working on Tales of Hoffman. He as is
1: well, the set designer for Tales of Hoffman. He's okay. designed and built it. But we some of the things we've presented in Cape Town uh, have been uh, Sweeney Todd at Theatre on the Bay, uh, Cabaret, um, Little Shop of Horrors. We've done Shrek the Musical. We've yes, done a lot of big you've projects. Done it all.
0: <laughs> Your lists here is lots of things that you've done, including opera. But now um, one of the uh, operas you did with Così fan Do you know? I mean, Mozart must be fairly tricky to work with as well, especially something like Così von Tutte, and I know we're going to hear an excerpt from that in a moment. Uh, Così is uh, one of
1: my favorite operas of all time, because it's a, it's, it's a lot like a Sondheim opera. It, uh, it's got a lot of complexity and darkness in it for all its sparkle. Mm. Um, it's got edge and danger underneath its froth, and the singers are so exposed, um, both emotionally and musically. It's it's edgy and dangerous and wonderful to watch. <laughs> um, and the piece I've, I've chosen, the, the beautiful trio, the Suave Silvento, is the kind of piece that I once played at my funeral. There are harmonies in that, crushed harmonies, which is full of aching longing, which is such dramatic music, even mm-hmm. though it's so static.
0: And yet the actual piece, this trio, is quite playful, especially with the baritone, what's his name, the character? Don Alfonso. Don Alfonso, sending them up all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Why are you listening to this heaven-sent music? And I remember I've been to two funerals where it has been requested as a piece for Oh, funeral. there
1: you go, the bittersweetness of life.
0: Well, exactly. Let's listen now to Suave Ciel Vento from Cosi Fantute by Mozart. That, I think, is one of the highlights regarding trios in opera. And clearly you agree, Stephen. And that's Suave Ciel Vento from Così Fantute Tutte by Mozart. Who were the singers there, Stephen? Um, I
1: don't know who the baritone is, but it's Anne Murray and Kirita Canoa. Such limpid, glorious sounds. <laughs> limpid is a good word. I um, Così was the first opera I assisted on in uh, at the English National Opera. And eight years later, it was the last opera I directed a revival of on the coliseum stage so it's another reason to choose cozy because it's played a a very seminal part in my life um over over the decades and it was that during COVID in 2020 i directed a production of cozy for cape town opera opera uct and it was the first big production that was done in 2020 post pandemic we rehearsed that in masks can you imagine uh,
0: yes it's but busy. we did it it happened mm-hmm. was it performed with masks? yes no not Could performed we? in masks oh, but okay.
1: audience had to wear masks and uh yeah. Actually, remember those God days. I remember that. So Feels like a distant dream.
0: It seems like a, d- a distant a nightmare. dream. When you were talking earlier about um the kickstart company, um one of the things that I saw is you want to reestablish pantomime. Mm-hmm. Uh now why would you want to do that? I mean, I know pantomime <laughs> is hugely popular and I don't mean that to sound the rock tree, incidentally.
1: No, I I think pantomime's got a pretty bad rap. I mean I've got American friends who think it's the hillbilly cousin of the musical theater. But um I know that there is nothing like a pantomime to grab a child's attention Absolutely. and and break that fourth wall and make them feel the the visceral magic of live performance. Um and I know it happened to me. I know it happened to Greg. And the reason that we work in the theater is because we were taken to pantomimes. Mm-hmm. So one mustn't be snobby about them. And if they're done with integrity and love and really clear storytelling, they can be the most fun
0: and the most exhilarating experience. Well, I think for adults too. Yes, absolutely. It's yeah. a very… um Because very often in, in, in pantomime there are… Little uh, jokes that are meant for adults just to keep them laughing as well.
1: Yeah, I say it's something like a wedding. It's some, something old, something new,
0: something borrowed, something blue. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The <laughs> wink. But one of the things I saw there, you've, uh, the, about having created some memorable drama productions, Jeeves and Worcester. Now, I ask you this because I've just been going through a phase again of reading Woodhouse and Jeeves and Worcester especially. And, um, I remember that television series with, um, Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry. For some reason, I didn't think it worked. So what did you do to get Jeeves and Worcester to work on stage? Um, well,
1: to begin with, I had a very good cast. I had Graham Hopkins and Robert Fridgen playing the two clowns. Um, and then I had Jonathan Rocksmith playing Bertie Worcester. Uh, and then a very, very clever design by Greg King, which uh, was very rough magic and a very bijou. And... Uh, it was quite uh, fun how it unfolded and unpacked on a very tiny stage. And we performed it in the Peter Tween studio theater in Johannesburg, Mm -hmm. but it, had everything that opened and shut, quite literally, from manor houses to sports
0: cars. When you say the two clowns, who did you mean? Because well, I it always was thought Jeeves. Bertie was the clown. Uh,
1: yes, they all, they're, they're all they all clowns. And yeah, but sure. uh, Bertie's the fall guy to the dry, white-faced clown of Jeeves. Jeeves, that's right. But there's also a buffoon character in this three-hander who plays a series of roles. He's another spellings, uh, is the butler, the other okay. butler. Okay. Oh, yes, that
0: makes sense. Yeah. But do you like Worcester? Do you like um, Woodhouse, I should say?
1: Um... I have grown to like it, but it's not a natural taste. It's a little arch for my taste, <laughs> okay. but but I, yeah, it's you can't deny the brilliance of the
0: writing. Yeah, no, absolutely, and it's a, it's actually a, um, a treat to read, uh, and it's so one witty. of those things that I read over and over again. Um, and the other thing I wanted to ask you was, you've done things like The Road to Mecca, Camelot, Chicago, the big sort of the big musicals, and cabaret, of course. Um,
1: yeah, you know, as I said, I am a storyteller, and mm-hmm. I love telling stories using music to support them. So whether I'm directing the tales of Hoffman or directing Chicago, it's the same job. You're still telling a story using music to convey meaning mm-hmm. um, or support meaning. Um, so, yes, I, I think I'm relatively comfortable directing big shows and small shows. So it is the same job.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we need some Wagner down here. How about that?
1: Let's speak to the CPO.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. And the other thing is um, do you play any instruments or sing or anything like no, that? No, I from do your sing. Acting days?
1: I do sing, but uh, not classical singing. Um, I have played musical theater parts before. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I don't. Sadly, I do, I do not play. I do read music, though.
0: Okay, which I think is important if you are directing an opera. It's kind of to. critical, actually. Uh, and have you? Would you like to mention possibly some great conductors you've worked with at the Eno, where well, there have me, been great conductors constantly? Do
1: you know one of the best conductors I've ever worked with is Jeremy Silver? Now, funnily enough, oh my, Jeremy. Here. Jeremy and I met at the Eno in my first year. He was a staff conductor, and I was a staff director. So that was in nineteen ninety-seven. So, we have actually been colleagues and friends for <laughs> a long time. Yes. Um, and we have worked together uh, for Opera Africa. We worked on a, a Traviata and a Rigoletto in uh, Pretoria and Bloemfontein. Um, and then he directed the, uh, conducted the Cousy I directed and the Capuletti Montecchi I did for Cape At the Town Inno. Opera. At at INO Cape Town Opera. Uh, we've worked all over the place. So Jeremy is one of the best conductors I've ever worked with. He's Gosh, collaborative it's... and sensitive and I
0: always come back for more. He's great. And as far as I know, the orchestra likes him as well, which is mm-hmm. good news because then they play nicely for Absolutely. him. Absolutely. Gosh. So we've got to end around about now. Thank you for telling us some interesting stories about this tales of Hoffman. I'm intrigued now because I can only admit this to you now that I've never seen The Tales of Hoffman live or on a recording. So my I'm well attuned to coming to have a look at it and mostly to see if I'm going to be able to follow it. I think you'll be able to follow it with no difficulty
1: at all. I can say that quite confidently. Um, and I really hope that it will appeal to you. I'm sure it will. And are the students enjoying it? They are loving it. Their commitment is extraordinary and mm. they're doing some uh, ex- wonderful, wonderful performances.
0: And I always like to say, what's your next big thing, Stephen, after the tales of it well, has died down. It's another
1: big show requiring music. Um I'm directing the sound of music at ah. Artscape for Cape Town Opera and Peter Turin Productions.
0: Excellent. What a great piece that is. Oh, Excellent. it's a, Do it's, you a, agree? it's a classic. It yeah. really really is. Now, what is your last piece of music? Children will listen. You've got some Sondheim in here. I have Sondheim it in here. In. Uh
1: Sondheim was like discovering opera through the Cullis record, uh discovering my first Sondheim at uh, 15 years old on a, a album called side by side by sondheim in the durban music library was an epiphany and there's extraordinary extraordinary intellectual emotional understanding of humanity it is there's no one like him in modern music making uh, theater making and um i couldn't exclude a list of Five favorite things without including Sondheim. This is the Barbra Streisand recording and just pay attention to the lyric. The, the, Into the Woods is my favorite musical. Um, it is so wise and so full of, uh, humanity and uh, the, the, uh, the dichotomy that is in humanity. It's, it's funny and tragic and being alive is, is so messy and so marvelous. And he captures that magnificently in, in that. Um, into the Woods, actually, was the last big production that uh, Greg and I presented in Cape Town at Theatre on the Bay just before COVID. Oh, gosh, Yeah, yes. So it is a, it's a dream show, and um, this recording is very special.
0: Stephen Stead, thank you very, very much, and I look forward to seeing The Tales of Hoffman, which runs from the 8th. To the 10th. To the only 10th. three performances. Yeah, so it's over next weekend, so make sure you get yourself a ticket. It's at the Baxter Theatre. And the director has been my guest on People of Note this week, Stephen said Thanks, Stephen. Thank you
1: so much for having me, Rodney.
3: Nothing's all black, but then nothing's all white. How do you say it will all be all right when you know that it mightn't be true? What do you do? Careful the things you say, children will listen as you do Only whatever you put in its head Things that your mother and father had said Which were left to them too Careful what you say Children will listen Careful you do it true, Children will see Children will turn if just to be free.